So, Father, that's my prayer, Lord, that we would, each of us, me too, Lord, memorize more, memorize more scriptures, more of your words, so that um, whether I've got the book with me or not, I can still know your word and it can still be ministering to me and, and be there ready for the Holy Spirit to bring to my remembrance. And so, Father, I, pray, I do pray that. I pray that you would help us to understand that we are a part of this process this sanctification process, that we are to do our best in that process, um, knowing that you will transform us. We are to go along with the transformation. And I pray, Lord, now as we go into these uh, final sessions, shorter sessions, Lord, that you will speak to us, show us what we need to, to see, help us to hear the things that are really pertinent to our own individual situations. And, and Lord, help us to, to apply them to, to hear what you say and then determine that we will do what you say. And I thank you, Lord, for you will make that possible for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so we looked at the perfect sacrifice. That's what we're looking at, the perfect sacrifice of Christ, how he has dealt with not just our guilt, but our guilt feelings and our shame. And Hebrews 9 and 10, as I said, talk about that, what he's done. They talk about the law being the uh, picture, the, the feast, the sacrifices, the law, the, the picture, the shadow of what Christ would bring. And um, Jesus, uh, when you think about it, what the writer is saying to the Hebrews is that the, is that the individual sacrifices that they made and the uh, feasts that they celebrated all pointed to Jesus, to what he would do when he came. And... Um, and, and what I was thinking about when I was thinking of it is, well, first of all, before I tell you what I was thinking about, let's read what God thinks about it, which might be slightly more important. Hebrews chapter 9, verse uh, 1 to 10. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshipper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation." But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience for dead, from dead works to serve the living God? So we talked last time, I talked about the fact that, um, that Christ's death and resurrection has not only uh, given us forgiveness from sin, and sins, individual sins. Uh, so we not only have the forgiveness from the guilt, we have the expunging or the cleansing of our conscience so that we don't have the reminder in, well, we do have the reminder, but we have a place to put our guilt feelings and our shame when it comes to us. And I was thinking, really, because the writer to the Hebrews is dealing with the fact that all of those things merely covered they put a cover on your sin. 
but it was still there. And so in a way, as he says, it was a reminder of sin uh, every year. And I wanted to put that into our language. And so I thought of a woman who loses both kidneys to disease. And um, for months and months, she's living on a dialysis machine. And pumped through the machine, her blood was cleansed of impurities. But when you think about it, the machine only takes the place of the kidneys temporarily. And that eventually, she's going to need new kidneys. That's a picture of the Old Testament and the way that the Jews were able to come. They went, if you like, onto a dialysis machine, and that machine cleansed their blood. But every time they went back to the machine, they were reminded that they were dying, that they had a sickness, a disease that was killing them. So actually, the thing that had been provided to keep them going was a reminder of the fact that they were going, that they were dying. And so, even though the dialysis machine or the sacrifices that the Jews made were wonderful and did actually cover their sin, just as the machine cleansed her blood for a while, it was only a reminder of the fact that she was dying and needed new kidneys. The sacrifices that they made were just a reminder that they were sinners and needed new hearts or new spirits. Do you see what I mean? And it's a perfect picture. In that way, you see that it is just a picture of what Christ would do. But in the same way, when the woman receives her new kidneys, she doesn't go back to the dialysis machine every week or every year, whenever it is. So once you have received the new, you don't go back to the old. And that's true for the Jews. Once the Jews have received Messiah, they have no need of or place for the Old Testament sacrifices because those sacrifices have been fully met in Christ. That's what the Bible means when it says he is the perfect sacrifice, and he has once for all made the sacrifice for sin. There is no need to keep going back to do those things. And exactly the same way, if you have received forgiveness through Christ Jesus for sins, then you do not have to keep going back to the same place to receive the same forgiveness because it was a once-for-all sacrifice made for all time, made for everybody, made for all sin. And actually, when you keep going back, in some ways you deny the fact of the perfect sacrifice of Christ and you say, whether or not you mean to say, you actually say, I don't fully believe that Christ has paid the debt in full, that it is finished. That's why it's so important that we understand what it is that Christ achieved. Because unless we live in the truth of what he achieved, what we are actually saying is, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. So when we put rules and regulations and things we have to do into our Christianity, what we are saying is, whether we like it or not, whether we mean to say it or not, what we are actually saying is, no, Christ wasn't enough. Which is a tremendously awful, tragic statement. Um, Jesus has succeeded in paying the price for our guilt, all of it. Past, present, and future guilt paid for by Jesus. And he has also succeeded in doing away with our shame because he took our shame upon himself on the cross. So the shame that you feel when you remember what you have done, he took that too. 
And the feelings, as I said, used earlier, this situation with my mum, the feelings of guilt, whilst they are going to naturally come because we remember, we, we are not God. We can't move our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. We do remember our sin, but we have a place to put the feelings of guilt now because we believe that Christ has taken not only the guilt, but the feelings of guilt too, and that he has actually cleansed my conscience. And the thing is, that is an amazing statement. It's a ma- an amazing reality. And if it's really true that I have been completely cleansed and that I stand forgiven, cleansed, perfect in front of a holy God, then that liberates me. Not just to know the freedom that, that his, his forgiveness is giving me and not just to know the freedom that one day I'm going to be in glory with God, but the freedom to do the things I am afraid to do because my past tells me I didn't do them well. Do you see what I mean? So now I don't know what's in your past. And I don't know what sins you have the feeling of guilt about, even though you might understand your guilt has gone. But I do know that every one of us looks at our past, sees places where we failed, and is slightly afraid to do that again. Slightly afraid to fail again. Slightly afraid to try again because we've made a mess in the past. And the memory of the mess holds us back. So I don't know what your thing is, and I don't know if you can, at this moment, totally identify with it. Maybe you can't, and that's a good thing. But we are all human, and we all have the same issues that assail us. And we all suffer from guilt feelings about the past, and they hold us back in the present and as we look into the future. I don't know what you made a mess of in your life. But because you made one mess doesn't mean to make you're going doesn't mean you're going to make another. You are a constantly changing, transformed person. And what you did 10 years ago, you will not do in the future because the Lord Jesus is transforming you and enabling you to do what he wants you to do. I am kinder today than I was eight years ago. I am more gracious than I have ever been. So if you think this is bad, you can imagine. I am more gracious than I was. That's not because of me. That's because I have chosen to live in the truth of who Jesus is. Now, uh, Carrie, she brought it up, so I'm not afraid to point to her because she brought it up here. There are things that people... Um, for some reason, think that they can keep bringing up to you, keep reminding you of stuff you didn't do or did do and shouldn't have done, whichever way around that is. And every time you go, and especially in churches, I mean, we have got this thing, speak the truth in love, we have got that after a tea, except that we forget the love. Speak the truth, oh my goodness, I'm a Christian, I, I just want to tell you this for your own good, Wendy. You know, I mean... Julie and I, we were talking about you, and we've just decided we're going to tell you this. Now, we're laughing because that's an extreme case, but seriously, seriously, I don't, it's not, I don't have to remind Wendy of something she did 10 years ago. I don't have to tell her how she offended me 10 years ago, although you always did, but no. <laughs> I don't have to keep reminding her. How many times do you have people, they come up to you? This used to happen to me quite often. I know you probably didn't mean it, Anne, but actually, you know when you said this? Well, that really hurt me. I've forgiven you, but it really hurt me. Well, my statement is now, not then, because then I would have just, I don't know what, but now it's like, well, if you've truly forgiven me, why are you telling me? Why are you telling me about something I did that you've forgiven me for, that Christ has forgiven me for, that everything, all, everything's settled and paid, why would you remind me of that? So what I'm trying to say is, that speaking the truth in love, the memory of sin, the memory of guilt, the memory of shame, that's all taken by Christ. 
And I don't need you and you don't need me to remind you of that because we have an enemy who is very happy to do the, remem- the reminding. What we need to be reminding each other of is, wow, I don't know what you did carry 20 years ago, but you are not that person today. You are a child of God being transformed before my very eyes. You are a loving, caring member of our family, and I am so grateful that you are here. That's what we need to be saying to people. We need to be telling people, wow, yeah, when they tell us, well, I, if you only knew, if you only knew, I, we just need to be saying, yeah, I don't know, but Christ does, and he is at work in you. This is what we are supposed to do for each other on the basis of what Christ has already done. So I want you to stir me on to good works. That's what Hebrews says. Don't forget, give up meeting each other, encouraging one another to do good works. I need you to do that for me. I need you when you hear about me being unkind to my mother. I need you to say, yeah, but that was then and this is now. And Christ is taking you on. That's what we need from each other. And when I receive that from you, I'm not afraid. Do you see what I mean? And I'm not afraid to, to do something and fail because I know that it's all covered. So think about yourself and think about how often you do that because you have to make a deliberate choice to do those things because it doesn't come naturally. We humanly don't naturally encourage each other. Sometimes there's an odd person who does, but mostly we are so quick to see the fault. We are so quick to judgment and criticism. So quick to... Well, I, I mean, if, if he knew what I know, he would never say that. So quick with our, um, yeah, our judgments. The whole point of this letter to the Hebrews, the whole point of Christ being enough, is that he is enough not just to pay for what you have done, but to enable you to go on and do great things with him. Great things things that you couldn't even imagine. Yeah. Yes. 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 It's a work in progress at this end, Martin. <laughs> It's a great work in progress. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Okay, so the the Hebrew says that now and forever we have the right and the uh, call to come closely, to come into the throne room, really. I think it's uh, chapter 7. Is it chapter 7? No, it isn't. Chapter 2 then. No, where is it? Oh, chapter 4, there you go. So, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Somebody's phone going? Is it an alarm? It's Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. So, the thing is, well, I'm going to read something else. Psalm 103, verse 12. I just want to make sure I hit the side there. Psalm 103, verse 12. 103, verse 12. 103, verse 12. As far as the... Oh, should have known this, Julie. It's your one. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 43, verse 25. Isaiah 43, verse 25. Um, if I get there. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. 
I mean, really, when we hear these verses, we should be saying, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah. And as I said, we should be considering how to stimulate one another to good deeds. Hebrews chapter 10, verse... um, 19, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way in which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So really, is that what you're doing? Is that what you are doing? Are you completely clear on it? Are you meeting together with other believers and spending time, not on your guilt and your shame, not trying to cover up your weaknesses and your failures, but confidently trusting the sacrifice of Christ? Are you free, really free, to be vulnerable in front of other people? Are you free to be real and free to love Honestly, because this is a matter of life and death. Because it is, as Jesus said, the way that unbelievers will know that he is real in the way we love one another. Can you love in unity? Can you stand firm with me, with each other? Will you? Will you stand firm? Look around the room. Really, these are people in this room who want to know God. They want to know God. That's why they came. I mean, it's Saturday. Who does this? On a Saturday, football's on. I know you don't like football. I love football, so just bear with it. Football is on. Oh, poor you. Hmm. No, I like rugby too. But... but you know, nobody does this for the whole day on a Saturday unless they want to know God. You want to know God. And the reason that you want to know God is because he wants you to know him. And he has called you here. And he has called you here so that when you leave, you stand in freedom. And you stand with me and with other people in freedom. And we make a difference in the world that we live in. Because we are not afraid We're not afraid to make a mistake. We're not afraid to fail. I'm not afraid that I'm going to be mean and horrible next time. I know that God has changed me. I know that I am not the person I was. Can you say the same thing? And are you willing to stand and say, I used to be like this. But I am not like that anymore. Norma, you can. If you could only stand up, you would do it. I know. (laughs) If she didn't have broken ribs and some dodgy hip. I'm thankful I didn't. There you go. There you go. Shame on you. Okay, Norma, that might be a tad too far. <laughs> I'm a little bit afraid what you're going to say next. <laughs> oh. Okay, moving swiftly on. <laughs> you did. Thank you, Norma. <laughs> if anyone wants to know more, sit, sit with tea and cake with Norma. She'll tell you more. Carrie does behind you. So... Okay, moving back. So, 
often the uh, response that comes when we talk about the forgiveness of God and the being set free and the fact that we are not going to be, hello Simon, the fact that we're not going to be who we were, that sets up a response. And the response is often, so then are you saying that believers can live any which way they want? And if we're forgiven anyway, why does it matter? Really, why does it matter? If I'm forgiven anyway, why does it matter what I do tomorrow? There you go. Because the opposite actually happens, doesn't it? When you understand the reality and the enormity of the forgiveness and the cleansing that has been done for you, you don't go and buy black underwear necessarily, (laughs) but you do... You, you have within you a growing desire not to do what you used to do. So actually, the opposite happens to what people say. People say, oh, so that's the thing, you, all you Christians, you can do what you like and then you'll be saved. I used to say that. I used to say, you're really telling me that I could commit murder and then I could come to Jesus and he would forgive me. And my poor, long-suffering friend would say, yes. And I would just laugh in her face. Don't be ridiculous. How can that be? Because that truth of forgiveness brings up in the unbeliever a rejection. A rejection. Because they can't believe that I would then want to live more holy than I did before. Because I understand the totality of the freedom I have in Christ, I want to live better I want to love him more. I want to know him more. Is that your experience? I believe anybody can change. Some people say, oh, that person will never change. But, yes. So, what is, what is the motivation to live for Christ? What is your motivation to live for Christ? Why do you want to live for Christ? Yeah, I wish you wouldn't get the right answer straight away. I mean, we could have a few wrong answers, and then I could say, yes, Anna, you got the right answer. I know, it was your mum, I know. So why do you want to live for Christ? Why do you want to live holy? Because you love Jesus. Why do you love Jesus? Because he's your hope. You love him because he first loved you, and you have been filled with the love of Christ brought to you by your spirit and by his spirit and that spirit is growing and growing and growing his love in you and so you find that you love him more today than you did before and you want to know him more today than you did before and I am so aware every time we do these days I say the same thing and sometimes I go home and I think, Lord, really, is this it? You know, was there nothing new? And I know that what God's saying is, it's, you have to keep repeating this because no one believes it. That the love that you have for Christ is what he put in you and he is putting more and more and more in you. And what I see about you is that you love him more and because you love him more, you love me more. And you are much more able to be generous in your assessments. Much more able to listen to someone speaking and and just overlook the mistakes. You are much more able to walk into a worship service and not like the music, but but able to worship God anyway. You are much more able to care for those who aren't where you are. Much more able to love one another as Christ loved you. Do you think that might be the the church that God wants to see? But, but, if the love of Christ in you is causing you to think that you can live any way you want, the writer to the Hebrews had a very harsh warning that he was going to tell them. Verse 26 of chapter 10. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what does that all mean in this wonderful letter, which is full of encouragement and full of the truth that we're forgiven and that past, present, future sins are already forgiven? What does that mean? Is it possible to do that? Really? So actually, the assurance of salvation is not an assurance. It's a maybe. Even if they've actually believed and received the Spirit? Okay, so uh, there's a lot of... That can be a problem because people can come to the Lord of God and then they can be hurt so much that they, they've decided in the end that they can't cope, especially in churches where there can be a lot of hurt and mm-hmm. what have you. And people then will say, well, yeah, I, I give up. I, I, I don't want to follow this God anymore because all I've received is hurt. Yeah, I'm going to stop you though, Mike, because it's a great example for Old Testament. But uh, either Christ has paid for everything or he hasn't. Either he's the all-sufficient sacrifice or he's not. Either I have the life or I don't. You can't have eternal life and lose it. Eternal life is eternal life. Eternal, never-ending, unending, forever. You can't lose eternal life. So if 1 John 5, uh, it was just the one that came into my mind. So 1 John 5, um, verse 11, verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life, the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. If you have put your trust in the Lord Jesus, he has given you his Spirit. That was his promise. 
You believe in Jesus, you receive my spirit. And his promise is also, never will I leave you nor forsake you. That has no meaning if he's going to remove his spirit. So if you have truly trusted Christ, his spirit lives within you. And his spirit is motivating you through the love of Jesus to continue on with him. There is no if in that statement. You either have the spirit of God or you don't have the spirit of God. Romans 8 says, and by this we know that we are children of God because the spirit of God lives within us. So it's a tricky one. Because we know people who don't live like Christians, who say they're Christians. And it's tricky because we don't want to be all forgiving and not care about sin. But the reality is, if you put your trust in Jesus, he gave you himself by his spirit. And he will never leave. He will never, ever, ever leave. Carrie saying you might be hurt in church. That's true. You might. You may say, I'm gonna, I don't want anything to do with this sort of God. But if God has put his spirit in you, you will not be allowed to walk straight into hell. That will not happen because his spirit will hold you back. But, of course, this is written to Hebrews who are tempted to go back to the old religion. They are tempted to go back to their sacrifices and their feasts to to hide, to hide their faith. And what he's saying to them here is there's going to be judgment with that. And what's going to happen to them? What happened very soon after this letter was written? Jerusalem was destroyed and hundreds of thousands, millions of Jews lost their life. That's the judgment that they're going to face. If you have eternal life, you have eternal life and no one and nobody can take it from you, even yourself. If God has given you life, you are living forever. Living forever. Make sure you know that. Because if you don't know that, you are going to get tossed about all over the place. Think about your own salvation. What has God done since he came and took up residence in you? He has changed you. We've spent the whole day talking about it. He has changed you. What was all that nonsense then? So, right, well, that's it. She didn't go far enough. He didn't do well enough. I'm off. Is that the God that we're talking about? Is that the all-sufficient God? All-sufficient Christ? He's promised me that he will never leave me. And if I can't, don't believe that promise, I'm done for. Because if any of my salvation depends on me, I am dead in the water. I am dead. I will never make it. Nor will you. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not loving enough or gracious enough or kind enough. You you can't do enough or be enough ever to get to heaven if it depends on you. And that's why it's so amazing that it doesn't. It depends on Christ. He is your life. He is not just the forgiveness. He's your life. You are saved by his life, that he is living in and through you. And yes, you will know people who look like they've walked away. And there'll be a question about them. Do they really ever get saved? Do they really ever know this Jesus? And you may never be able to answer that. But you need to know for yourself that you are held in the hand of a God who will never let you go. What does it mean? I have written their names on, my, on the palm of my hand. What does that mean if it doesn't mean that you're safe and assured of your salvation? What does it mean, never will I leave you or forsake you, if, if God's going to go uh, you know, when I don't do well enough? What does it mean that his, his sacrifice is sufficient if I've got to do it, any part of it? Honestly, I, we have to get this set And this is not me, this is not my opinion, although it is. This is what this word says. What does this word say? What does God say? If not, that we are safe and secure in him. What does Jude 1 mean? 
to those who are beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. What does it mean he's keeping me if he's not keeping me? What does it mean that I'm going to glory? That moment by moment I'm being transformed from glory to glory as I behold in the mirror the image of Jesus. What does that mean if I'm not going to be with him? What does it mean that he went to prepare a place for me? What does it mean that I'm the bride of Christ, that I'm the body of Christ, that I am seated with him far above all rule and authority and every name that is named? What does that mean if I can lose this eternal life? I can't, you cannot lose eternal life. It wasn't yours to to give and it is not yours to lose. So though we may not be able to answer other people's questions, we can answer our own. I know that I'm saved. And I know that I'm saved not because of what I do. I know that I'm saved because of what Christ did. I know that I'm saved because he is the all-sufficient Jesus. And he will never fail me. I know that he is with me to the end. And the end is glory. Please, please, if you go away with nothing else, go away with that. If you have truly put your trust in Jesus, and only you know that, you and God, then know that you are safe for eternity, that God has a future more glorious for you than you could ever imagine, that he came to give you life and life abundant. And then live in the truth of it. Norma, yes, live in the truth of it. I was driving a truck into Birmingham. <laughs> and after conversion, I was able to say, oh, Lord God, you told me it's too much for me. Yes. And my face changed. My face softened. And I delighted in going into a shop, meeting a woman who's known me for 20 years. And I put my hand on her shoulder and said, hi there. She said, am I supposed to know you? I said, you've known me for 20 years. She said, it's not Norma, is it? I said, yes, I'm me now. She recognized me by my voice. Uh, I changed out of all recognition. Yeah. Praise God. Praise the Lord. I very nearly went into a psychiatric place near Warwick called Hatton. I very nearly did. I was saved from that. I was in a very bad state. So we need to hear Norma's testimony at some stage. Not now, Norma. Not now. We've got a boat to catch and we're on our way. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, okay, but... Yeah. I think... uh, No, I think the answer to 26... So let me just go there to make sure I'm quoting the right 26 and 27. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a, sinning, a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury of which will consume the adversaries. I think two things are possibly true. First of all, I think this is a letter to Hebrew believers at that time. So there is that, and there is going to be a terrifying judgment that's coming on Jerusalem any time now. There's that. If they hide in the temple, they will die in the temple because that's what's going to be attacked in Jerusalem. So there's that. There's the physical death that's going to come because of the judgment of God. And the judgment of God is going to come why? In Luke, Luke, he says, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he weeps, oh, how I long to gather you to myself as a mother hen wants to gather her chicks. But you would not have it. And he, because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. So if those people who, have, who want to go back and hide in the temple, they will, be physically, they will physically die in that time. Secondly, crossing the bridge of time with it, if you go back completely to that way, I think that at the very least you'd have to question, do I really believe? Because if I went around this room... Could you really go back? Really, is there anyone in this room who would be tempted to go back to the the life they had before they knew Jesus? I mean, it's not always been easy, but would you really go back? And the answer is no. Why not? Of course, of course. But would you go back? Would you go back? Would you go back? 
remember, this verse is sinning willfully. Would you willfully go back? There you go. Never in a thousand. Thank you, Eve. Thank you. Willful and deliberate, yeah. they ignored Moses' law, uh, and then the other is just through through frailty. And, uh, okay, so why wasn't that forgiven at the cross? Why wasn't your frailty forgiven at the cross? <coughs> so how can you lose your salvation because of something that's already forgiven? So there you go. That's my point. Why are you saying? Why are you arguing with me? <laughs> Can I just say, the reason I said he was Old Testament is the, the payment for sin, the payment that David was offered, do you want my judgment, do you want me, do you want a plague, do you want this, that, all of that was taken by Christ. Oh, I agree. So, it's an Old Testament example of something that couldn't happen to us because it was taken by Christ and he paid that price. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that there are different... T- that there aren't different circumstances. Of course there are. But Christ paid the price. Yes. All of it. God is love is shown in that what he did for David. Yes. Yes. Yes, but that's a different... That's a, it's, it's a true thing, but it's a, different, it's a different area. And we're not going into that area now, Mike, today. But you're, yes, I agree with you about the love, but it's not, that's not what we're talking about. Go ahead, Carrie. Yeah. And you think, right, that's it. Yeah. There you go. That's exactly what I'm saying. You cannot lose your salvation. It wasn't yours to get, and it is not yours to lose. You cannot do it. And your salvation rests on the faithfulness of God, not on your own faith. You cannot be faithful enough. Give it up. You cannot be faithful enough. But he is. Hmm? No, nothing at all. Exactly. Yes. Yes. But let's be clear. You know, there are people who say they're Christians and they're not. They just go to church. You know, and they, they remain as vicious and mean and horrible as they always have been because they don't have the Holy Spirit. That's just the, that's the truth. And we live in a, in a world, our Western world, is full of people like that who go to church and who aren't really believers. And you know they're not believers because there's no, sh- there's no kind of trying in them. You know that when they talk, they don't love Christ. They love themselves. And you can see it and hear it because the, the Holy Spirit in you shows you things. But, but my point is even there. What is our responsibility to the person who's going to church and thinks maybe that they are a Christian because they walk in the door every week? What is our responsibility to them? To show them the reality of a life in Christ and the way to him. And what is the truth? And, and do you think that they'll know the reality if you only put on this nice big mask Look how great I am. Look how good I am. I never fail. I never do anything. They won't. Exactly. What they need to see is a weak and frail human being who needs Jesus and who has received the power and the grace and the mercy of Christ. That's what we need to be showing each other and unbelievers. Yeah. Oh, yes, exactly, 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 thank you, exactly, exactly. We are supposed, you are not Jesus. I mean, I know it's an unusual thought, but you are not God. You can't be perfect this side of heaven. 
You will make mistakes. You will fail people. You will be unkind. You will not do things you should do and do things you shouldn't do. That's going to happen. But we're supposed to be showing people a God who does never does that. Exactly, Martin. A God who never disappoints. A God who is always faithful. If you think you can lose your salvation, how faithful is your God? If you think that you can fall away and never come back, well, what was Jesus all about then? What was the perfect sacrifice once for all time all about? If you're not totally set free in Christ, what did it mean when he said, I came that you might have life and life abundant? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yes, exactly. Yes. 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 And so I'll just take that one step further, which I know you haven't gone, Jane, probably don't mean, but really... Jesus has told you, God has told you that he, you have the life. That's knowledge. You have that now. Are you going to live in the truth of that? Or are you going to, what did you just say, Jane? You said they're, gonna, they're denying the knowledge or they're rejecting the knowledge. And we have that choice all the time. Will you live in freedom or won't you? Will you reject the truth of not? <laughs> truth of not. Will you reject the truth or not? Yes, of course. Of course. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, Jane, I love you. I'm definitely eating cake with you at break time. <laughs> okay. So, this... Um, holiness that Hebrews talks about, which I haven't quoted enough because I've been so far off the scriptures a lot of the time, but um, uh, is a present-day reality. So I've got some things that I just want to reiterate before we take a break. The first one is Hebrews 9, verse 12, which kind of answers one of the things we've been talking about. Hebrews 9, verse 12. And through the blood of, and not through the blood, uh, blood of boats, <laughs> goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You have eternal redemption in Christ Jesus. Number two, verse 14. He has cleansed our consciences from dead works so that we may serve the living God. You are able to serve the living God. Number three. Chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You have been made holy through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ once for all time. Hebrews 10, verse 10. You have been made holy. Sanctified means holy. You have been set apart for holiness once for all time. Verse 14 of chapter 10. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified or being made holy. Chapter 10 verse 14. You have been made perfect forever 
in Christ Jesus. Verse 17 of chapter 10. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. God does not remember your sins or your lawless deeds. And all of this cleanses us and frees us from the guilty conscience so that we can draw near to God, so that we can have hope. And this is a promise. You see, this is not, well, if you do this, but if you don't, this is going to happen. These are promises made in Christ Jesus. Promises, promises. And God is faithful. You are cleansed, but you will serve God. And the memory of all your dead works, all the conscience, all the memory of your stuff that you did that weren't pleasing to God will no longer be able to stop you from serving God. So, okay, because forgiveness in the Bible is never passing over guilt. It's sending guilt away. Forgiveness is sending away It has that meaning in the Greek. It means to send away. In reading the relation to that first father, 912, you were saying that surely means that when the Jews on the cross end, it is finished. Yes. He meant that there would be no blood sacrifice. No, exactly. Amazing, I know. I know. Yeah, finished. Yeah. Uh, on the scapegoat. Yes. Yes. Same thing. Picture, a picture of what Christ would do. Sent it outside the camp. Yeah. So, if you're guaranteed of cleansing and you're going to trust that, what are you going to do with the memories of your past failure? Hey, you're going to forget them. How are you going to make yourself forget them? Because you, 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 your memory is, is kind of it's hard to control. So what are you going to do when you remember it? <laughs> no, you're not going to bury them, Norma, because then they'll resurface like those things you hit on the head with kids. You know, they pop up all over the place. There you go. Yes, Jane, you're going to take every thought captive, which is what actually Angela said at the end of the last session. We are going to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are going to destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are going to hold every thought captive. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, or 5 verse 10. I'm sorry, I always forget that. I think it's 10.5. You are going to hold every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Um, And you are going to do what God does. You are going to refuse to live in the reality of them. You're going to live in the reality of who you are now in Christ. Actually in the reality of who Christ is in you. What does that mean then? Instead of looking backwards, where are you going to look? You're going to look forwards. And convinced, and I mean convinced, that Christ has already and will continue to change you, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what are you going to do? You're persuaded of it. You're convinced of it. You know that you know that you know that you have eternal life. What are you going to do? Live on the truth. Act on it. You're going to step out fearlessly. Fearlessly. You're not going to be afraid that you're going to fail or that you'll mess things up. You're going to step out fearlessly trusting the Lord that he is going to enable what he has called you to do. Now, I don't know what your thing is, what it is, but whatever it is that he's speaking to you about, and I know he's speaking to you about something because he never stops talking, this God. So he is talking to you about something, and it is to step out fearlessly in the truth of who he is. 
and what he has promised. Okay, I think we'll have tea and cake. But before we do, um, Jesus said that uh, in John 8, 32, he says, if you're truly my disciples, then you will continue in my word and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. There's so much in that. We're going to paint it on the wall of the new room that we've got. That if you are truly my disciples, you will continue in my word and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Break that up. If you are truly Christ's disciple, what will you do? Continue. You will continue in his word. What does that mean? Reading it, loving it, studying it, meditating in it, obeying it, all of it. All of that, you will continue in my word. And then what will happen? You will know the truth. The truth and then, and the truth will make you free. It won't, make you, it won't set you free like we talk about being set free when we came to Jesus. But continuing in his word is going to continue to make you free. Continue to make you free. So today, when you heard that Christ has came to give you eternal forgiveness and redemption, that you have life in him, you need to continue in that truth. How are you going to continue in that truth? You're going to speak it to yourself. Psalm 42 and 43, I love that psalm, and I have to use it so many times. In that psalm, the psalmist, and nobody knows whether it was David or not, but let's say it's David, he says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God. When you are tempted to look at all your failings and all your inadequacies and all your weakness, and when you are tempted to fear because of it, because you're not going to be enough, you need to be speaking truth to your soul. You need to be telling your soul, I'm not good enough, but he is. I'm always failing, but he never fails. I am not afraid because he is with me. Reminding yourself... God does not condemn you. He does not condemn you. He is not ashamed of you. God is not ashamed of you. How wonderful is that? God is not ashamed of me. He's up there. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, have you considered my servant Eve... Have you considered Carrie? Look how she's carrying on and carrying on and carrying on. That's what God's doing right now. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. When you drive home today, which won't be yet because we've got tea and then more. When you drive home after that, ask God, what does he think of you? Zephaniah three seventeen. I remember this burnt on my mind. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. One time, a long time ago, when I still lived in Japan, and when I was screaming and shouting at God, because he had me visiting a, a, a prisoner that I didn't want to visit, and it took hours and hours to get there. And as I came to my senses, I said, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. What do you think of me? I'm so sorry. And do you know what came into my mind? Zephaniah three seventeen. I rejoice over you with singing. And do you know what I did? No. I said, that can't be true. I've just remembered that scripture in the car. That can't be true. Do you know what I did next? This is the truth, absolute truth. Do you know what I did next? No. I carried on driving. Can't stop the car in Tokyo or you'll never get anywhere. So <laughs> I carried on driving and I said, no, I refuse that. I refuse that. I believe that you have said that to me. You know what the next thing I thought? Come on, keep up. What was the next thing? You can't possibly keep up with your thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing I heard in my mind was, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the truth. That was a two-minute conversation 
on the way to this prison outside of Tokyo, because I was screaming at the Lord, and I mean really screaming. I can be like a banshee when I get going. And I was saying, why am I doing this? I'm not cut out for this. And then I did... I came to my senses and I said, I'm so sorry, Lord. I'm so sorry. What do you think of me? What must you think of me? And he said that. I rejoice over you with singing. It was just an amazing thing. And I wouldn't receive it straight away. That can't be true. I've just remembered it. And then I thought, no, I will have that. I'm going to have that. And he said, well done, good and faithful servant. When you go home today, ask the Lord what he thinks of you. You can't have my verse. You've got to have your own. <laughs> That's cheating. So you've got to have your own. <laughs> I, hey. Was it? I stole it off you then, Mark. Sorry. <laughs> I think it's universal. We can all have it. Praise God for that then. Praise God. So, Father, we're just going to take a break and then we're going to come back for the last session. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to really live in the truth of these things, that we know that we know that we know that we are yours for eternity, that we needn't be afraid. We can step out in freedom, perfect freedom, unafraid to fail or to mess up, Lord, because you will enable us to continue on with you. I love you so much, Lord, that you will never stop with me and with us. I love it that I, I have that freedom, that I can, I can be wrong and I can still know that you will be there. And it's just wonderful, Lord. And so I thank you so much. I thank you for Jesus, who is the perfect sacrifice. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came for me and for us. And Lord, I just uh, yeah, praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.